Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Chalk Talk Football Podcast. Once again, joined by our very good friend Greg Cosell. And Greg, the season is just about upon us. We started our uh, preseason previews by division last week with the AFC East, and we're going to turn to that same Eastern division in the NFC now. With uh, boy, a lot of turnover here, a lot of intriguing stories, and when you look at, is this the most competitive division in football? Oh, I mean, you'd probably say that the NFC West is pretty competitive as well, uh, but the NFC East is right up there. I think that, you know, everybody talks about Dallas and Philly, obviously, but I think the Giants will be improved. Uh, Washington, I think, is a little bit of a, of a wild card and, and, and uncertainty, but I think they have some better players than they did a year ago, so I would expect them to be uh, reasonably improved as well. This is a tough division to handicap. Yeah. Well, let's start with the team that uh, really atypically, uh, given people's perceptions about Jerry and Stephen Jones, has been built from the lines out, the Dallas Cowboys, uh, starting with Tony Romo. And you and I have had a lot of discussions about Romo in the seven or eight years we've been doing these podcasts. Um, certainly, I think last year was his best season. It was his best line. He had the best running attack. Um, I don't know if we need to say anything more about Romo specifically, but is there anything on tape or talking to coaches that maybe stood out about him last year that didn't in years before? Well, I've always liked Romo, but I think one question that you sort of have to ask is, what's the correlation between the fact that he had his best season last year and the fact that he far and away threw the fewest passes in his all his years as a starter? Uh, because last year this team ran the ball almost 70% of the snaps on, on first down, uh, which is uh, was far and away the highest in the NFL. So Rome did not throw the ball an awful lot on first down. Now, if memory serves me correctly, he, he was very good on third down, uh, which is obviously the possession down, the money down in the league. But last year, Romo really orchestrated run-first offense in which he was – you know, we don't want to get into shade terms, but he was not necessarily the way they structured their offense, the driving force. Yeah. Well, the driving force was DeMarco Murray. He's now in Philadelphia. And I remember when the Seahawks had Walter Jones and Steve Hutchinson on their left side, and everyone up here was talking about, oh, anyone could run behind that line. And it was kind of proven out when Hutchinson went to the Vikings and nobody could run behind that line. But... You know, I did a long tape piece on DeMarco Murray a few weeks back, and I think, you know, you got Joseph Randall, you've got Darren McFadden, who to this point have proven to be just guys. I think it's a bit of a misnomer in the case of Murray. Um, He led the league in runs over 15 yards with 27. Total yards on those runs was 619. And for a guy who stands about 6 foot 220, I mean, people think of him as an outside runner. I saw him run tough a lot inside. I remember one run against the Saints where he blew off about seven tackles. And there were cases in which he, you know, Randall now says, well, Murray left a lot of meat on the bone. I kind of don't think so. What are your thoughts about Murray's part of the success of that running game and how the, uh, the new cadre of guys will work out? Because the way I see it, let me put it this way. I think... I would compare it to the late 90s, early 2000 Broncos, where DeMarco Murray was Terrell Davis, and now you're going to get a bunch of Olandis Garys and Mike Andersons behind a really good offensive line. Well, I'll say this. Uh, I think what Murray did as an individual season is really hard to do. Now, I don't think ability-wise, in terms of lateral agility, uh, those things, that he's a top, back. Now, when I say that, I don't want people to think I mean he's not very good. I don't think he's, you know, at the level of the Adrian Petersons, and and I don't think he's Marshawn Lynch. Um, But I think the one thing that stood out to me about Murray last year was how hard he ran, and how hard he ran every game throughout the entire game. And that is a skill set. The ability to run with power and toughness in the fourth quarter after 25 carries, not everybody can do that. Right. And I I think that if the Cowboys want to play the same way this year, Doug, I don't think that kind of running game can be done by committee. Right. And that's just my personal 
personal opinion. So uh, if, you know, I don't think Joseph Randall can run with that kind of toughness. Darren McFadden, we don't even know what his status is physically. He's a tough runner. Uh, when he, you know, in the few times he's played for any length of time, he did show toughness as a runner. But I don't think anybody's carrying 350 times for the Cowboys individually. So I think that their run game is not going to be the same as it was last year. Well, I think we know what McFadden is. He's kind of a straight-line speed guy when he's healthy. And, of course, that's a big, fat caveat. Um, I watched a lot of Randall tape for this piece. I mean, there was a touchdown against the Bears where he blew through the first two levels and then just juke Peanut Tillman out of his shorts. But it was the Bears' defense last year, and it was Peanut Tillman last year. Uh, there was a run against the Redskins where he kind of muddled, muddled around the line and didn't get anywhere, didn't really see the whole. He's kind of a speed-to-power guy, and I don't always see that transition happening. What are your thoughts about Randall? Because obviously he's going to get more reps. Maybe he'll develop. But what are your thoughts about him now based on what you've seen? You know, I think Randall is somewhat of a downhill, straight-line-ish runner. Uh, I, I think he's not – a tremendously quick laterally, although he can do that, but I don't think that's his game. Uh, and now the question is, because he's not small, the question is, can he sustain, can he run with power uh, over long stretches? Can he sustain that? That's a total unknown. But no matter how well he plays, I don't believe he's going to carry 350 times, and I don't think he's capable of doing that. Yeah. Um, moving to wide receivers, as far as competitive temperament, um, catch radius, speed in short areas, would, I mean, at best is always a subjective term. Would you rate Des Bryant as, let me put it this way, the most valuable receiver in the NFL? Oh, tough question, but he's right there. I mean, you know, you know me with the list, Doug, yeah. but yeah, he's really right there. Uh, Des Bryant's really gifted, really talented. He's very physical. He can run. He can get over the top of the defense. He's really good run after catch, both with his speed, quickness, and power. So uh, there's not an element of receiving at the NFL level that Des Bryant can't do. So the next question is, Jason Witten was the number two receiver. We know what Witten is. Um, DeMarco pretty Mur- good, by the way. Yeah, DeMarco Murray was probably a future Hall of Famer. DeMarco Murray was the team's third leading receiver, so they're losing right. that as well. Um, you have Terrence Williams, a guy I have liked. I don't think he's kind of lived up to what I thought he might be. Cole Beasley is kind of the prerequisite Wes Welker slot guy that announcers tend to overstate as a you know scrappy white guy. Um what are your thoughts first on Williams? Um, I think Williams is mostly a vertical guy, and I don't by that I mean not just that he runs deep routes, but I think he's a straight line guy. So he runs those kinds of routes, whether they're in-breaking routes or whether they're ver- vertical-type uh, routes. I think that's what he is. Uh, and I think he can be effective in this offense because of Bryant, because of Witten. Now, the question is, if a uh, back can't catch a lot of balls, as Murray did last year, and Murray's an excellent receiver, how does that change the dynamic? And again, that's an unknown, and that's something they have to figure out. We've heard reports out of Dallas that he had a great offseason, Terrence Williams, and maybe, you know, whatever it means when people say he's ready to take the next step, I don't know exactly what that means, because I don't think his skill set's going to change. Uh, you know, the question is, is he going to be throwing more balls? Um, let's talk for a minute before we move to the offensive line about what Murray added as a receiver because that, that's kind of the undersold aspect of his departure because he wasn't just a swing pass guy. He would move up and take little digs upfield. And, you know, I, I, I think when we talk about his supposed fungibility as a total player, uh, his value as a back is one thing when you had his receiving value. And when we get to the Eagles, we'll talk about this and all the things that Chip likes to do with running backs. I think that's where he'll be missed in a way that most people might not recognize. I would agree with you. Uh, I think he's a really good receiver. In fact, when he came into the league, very few people thought he could do what he did as a runner last year, but most thought he could be an excellent receiver and be a really good sub-package back, and he's obviously proven to be more than that, but his receiving ability is what really stood out. Yeah, I was at his senior bowl. I remember talking to him and just watching him uh, catch passes. I mean, he would line up in the slot and things like that, and I kind of thought the same thing. Uh, didn't expect, I didn't expect a season last year either. Um, so this offensive line, 
Um, obviously, the best in the league, certainly as far as um, run blocking. I don't think we need to really talk about that. Um, let's say they. Let's say, I mean, Lael Collins has been alternating between tackle and guard, so we don't really know where he'll be. Are there issues with pass blocking that were masked by the relatively low number of passing attempts? Um, that's a hard question to answer because their offense didn't require a lot of deep drops uh, and, and a lot uh, of plays where the offensive line had to one-on-one pass protect for long periods of time. So now the question is, as they look at this season, if the run game is not quite the same, are they in more long-yarded situations? Are they forced to throw the ball more? And then We'll find out. Uh, you know, I think that look, Smith at left tackle is very athletic. I don't think he's a problem. No. Um, the que- you know, the question is, Doug Free has struggled in his career in pass protection. Um, you know, I think they, they theoretically have some moving parts. I don't know how they want to play this out. I mean, Collins was probably a first round pick without his his off the field issue that got resolved. So is he going to eventually replace Ronald Leary left guard, or is he going to replace Doug Free at right tackle? So uh, we'll see. Uh, but I think that the dynamic of their offense will change, in my opinion, and I think that will uh, that will put an interesting burden on the O line. Yeah. Well, I think I mean I, I don't think there's any question about Tyron Smith. What, they got him locked up. He's what 24. They got him locked up. He's still very young. He came out at 20, I believe. Yeah, he did, and he's he's uh, he's as gifted as any left tackle. I like um, Frederick and, and I love Zach Martin is just an ass kicker. I loved watching him on tape last year. He's a very very nasty. He reminds me a little bit of Kevin Zeitler, who I know is a favorite of yours, and that he just wants to go out and, and just demolish people. Yeah, and the thing about Martin. Is I don't think they'd move him because he played right guard really, really well last year, but we know he played tackle in college. Uh, so, again, I think they've got some moving parts here that uh, we'll see how it plays out. You know, uh, it'll be a different. The one thing I will say, in my opinion anyway, it's going to be a different offense. It, they can say they're going to run the ball the way they did it last year. I don't know about that. I, I think that's diminishing what DeMarco Murray did. Not many backs in this league have carried the ball 392 times. Right. And it's Philly's problem that usually the next year they tend to fall off a cliff. If it were me, um, I think Leary has a lot of liabilities, especially against stunts and twists, but I think he's masked to a point by the people to his left and right. Um, given Doug Free's increasing struggles against outside speed rushers, Yep. I might put Collins out there, but then again, when I did Collins's tape, I thought he would be, uh, you know, one of those pretty good tackle, awesome guard guys. Uh, yeah, because I mean, his game, I, I thought he could play tackle, but his game is built more on physicality, toughness, competitiveness, nastiness, and usually those guys play better on the inside. Yep. Um, Dallas's defense, which, and this is the other potentially falling domino here because Dallas really had an advantage in the time of possession game with their run game, kept the defense off the field, and it was that and Rod Marinelli's brilliant coaching that kind of saved this defense from itself in a personnel sense in a lot of ways. I want to ask you about a couple guys without going... Well, just before you do, that's a great point because ultimately I think you could make the argument that DeMarco Murray was the foundation not only of the offense but of the team Yep. because they were able to camouflage and compensate for weaknesses on defense throughout a large part of the season. And if they can't play like that on offense... Now, in their mind, they addressed some of these issues. I mean, in an ideal world, Randy Gregory is, a, is a, at least a very good situation pass rusher. Um, we know Hardy's going to miss four games, but then he'll be back. And, and say what you want about Hardy, he's a very good player. DeMarcus Lawrence, who would now be in his second year, showed some flashes at the end of the year. So in their mind, they feel like that issue has been addressed. We won't know that till the games are played. But this is not a defense that is going to dominate play-to-play. They need to. Be- no, it's not. And- they don't have that kind of personnel. And there's only so much you can scheme your way around that. So, you know, uh, if they pass more and they lose that time of possession battle and that defensive regression happens, more of the onus goes on Romo. And maybe it turns into something like Romo had to deal with two and three years ago when they weren't making the playoffs, I'm just saying. 
Yeah, and that's a, you know that's a, a potential concern. You're right because this defense did not play a lot of snaps last year, relatively speaking. And if they have to play more snaps, uh, then it becomes a let's see. You know, and we don't know. Um, you know, the one thing that really stood out on tape last year is they started putting a whole lot more man to man as the year progressed because everybody automatically assumes Rod Marinelli is cover two. He played a lot more man to man as the year progressed. Well, cover two can be press as well. So people, <laughs> right? But I was talking about cover two zone. Yeah, it can be a lot of different things. Um, yeah. When I look at Randy Gregory, I see tremendous speed. I see some speed to power. What I really see is kind of a Bruce Irvin type. How far is he away? You know, with with the hand moves, with the inside counter, with the things you need, especially at his weight. Because if he's popping two forty, he's really been leaning on the Twinkies in the off season. He played at about two twenty eight in his last collegiate year. Um, and we know that when these edge rushers come into the NFL, they're usually way underdeveloped in their hand moves. Um, and he, he seems like that kind of guy. How far along is he based on his college tape in his development as opposed to where he needs to be? I thought his college tape was really good, Doug. I mean, I think if this guy was clean, he was a top-five pick. So, again, I don't know how the, the personal stuff's going to play out, and, and I, I can't speak to that. But I think if you use Randy Gregory selectively early on in his career, I think he could be a really uh, significant pass rusher. I think he's got great pass rush skill. Um, I mean, I remember watching him play against Miami when he went up against Eric Flowers, and that Flowers couldn't block him. Right. And Flowers was the ninth pick in the draft, I believe, or the tenth pick. Well, I mean, Flowers couldn't block him. That's a different story. <laughs> we will get to that in a minute. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Gregory, to, to me, um, I mean, I thought Fowler was the best defensive player in the draft. Gregory, as a pure pass rusher, is really, really good. I mean, really flexible and athletic with really loose hips. So when you say if they use him correctly, how do you define that? Well, I think right now he's not ready to play 50-55 snaps a game. I mean, I wouldn't even attempt to do that. I don't know what their attitude is. I think he should be used in sub-packages or situationally. I think right now, as a rookie, if, if you should look to get 25 snaps out of him, and, and I think he could be really effective. Yeah. Um, we want to talk more about their defense, but we want to get to other teams here, and we do have a limited amount of time. So I want to move to the Giants. And starting with Eli Manning and in that Ben McAdoo system, which really seemed to play to his strengths, he's in a contract year. Um, what, what different things did you see about Manning, uh, different things you saw about the offense, how that all clicked together? Because, I mean, yeah, Odell Beckham was awesome. We both knew he would be. We both had him rated very highly. Yep. But what other things, just in the, in, the, in the structure and the scheme of that offense, helped Eli Manning out? Well, number one, I thought the offense uh – that kind of offense, the so-called more West Coast, and I know that term you know, can mean 20 things now, but the ball was coming out quicker, the reads were more defined, uh, and then Eli, over the last six games of the season, threw 12 touchdowns and only three picks. He only threw 14 interceptions last year. He actually had a very good season, uh, and then because the Giants did not have a great record, that got lost in translation. But I thought as the year progressed, Eli was far more decisive, more accurate, it. He was. I thought he was very, very good over the last six, seven weeks of the season. Yeah. And you would expect that to continue. He's another year in the same system. He's a very smart guy. Uh, I would expect this passing game, and again, if Victor Cruz, and we don't know yet, but if he can play at all, um, they signed James Jones, who, you know, we know what he is, but he's, he's a guy who can help a pass offense in a certain role. So I think they have a lot of weapons. Uh, you know, the question is still now at the running back position. Yeah, well, it's you know Rashad Jennings is a starter. Andre Williams, who I know had a lot of hype, and I you know, uh, I you know the guy I always thought was undervalued, and uh, uh, someone I think who could shine in this particular kind of offense is Shane Vereen. You too? Shane Vereen. Oh 
yeah. I mean, I, I think he's going to be, you know, really, really an important player in this offense. Uh, and, you know, again, I don't know exactly how they will use him. We saw in New England, he predominantly was used sort of as a sub-package guy, but there were many times he lined up as their back. Uh, so, I, you know, he's one of those versatile players. And the one thing, you know, you talked about DeMarco Murray as, as a receiver. Vereen can line up anywhere as a receiver. And that's, and, how I, yeah, and that's exactly how I think they'll use him, and that's why he's going to be – because, you know, this is coaching. You you point away from your liabilities and toward your attributes. You you take Vereen, you move him out of the backfield, you create linebacker mismatches, and you pick up those yards. You know, they're in a situation with certain players on offense, okay, where if they can create one-on-ones, it's Vereen, it's obviously Odell Beckham, and Larry Donald is a very athletic, talented tight end who you would assume would get better with more experience. He did not play tight end in college very much, so he's still on the learning curve. But, I mean, these are players who, I mean, I remember against the Redskins, Larry Donald, that was the game he caught three touchdowns, Yep. and he caught one on, one on a corner, one on a linebacker, one on a safety. So, uh, you know, he's got ability to win versus man-to-man. And I think the Giants are in a situation with their personnel where they can create a lot of those matchups. And Eli traditionally, and I mean, it's changed from the Gilbride days, but he traditionally has wanted a tight end as sort of a safety valve. Yeah, and the thing about Eli, too, and it's one reason at times in his career he's thrown a lot of picks, is he's, he'll throw it. I mean, if it's man-to-man, he's throwing it. Yep. And then, obviously, Odell Beckham is, is a guy who's going to catch it when you throw it versus man-to-man. Um, you know, I think Vereen creates mismatches. So this is a very intriguing offense. So at the receiver position, uh, I, know, I remember talking about Beckham, Odell Beckham before uh, the season uh, in our draft podcast. I thought he was the best receiver in this draft class. I remember you were high on him, too. I don't know that either one of us expected what they got. No, he was number two for me behind Watkins. Um, you know, again, it's, it's, do you expect the phenomenal catches that he made? No, of course not. Uh, but, you know, I wasn't surprised he had success because his, his quickness is just, you know, I remember talking to Ike Taylor numerous times and him telling me about Antonio Brown, uh-huh. that Antonio Brown... Uh, coming out of a break was a 4-2 guy. He said he didn't run a 4-4, you know, just running in a straight line. But coming out of a break, he was 4-2, yes. and that's far more important than straight line speed for a receiver. Odell Beckham is, is somewhat like that. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, he, you know, he's got it all. He's, you know, he's tougher than you might think in traffic. Certainly the, the ridiculous catch radius. So if they get Cruz back and he becomes their speed slot guy, um, you know, and, and Beckham had that great season. And hello, here's Ruben Randall, who had 127 targets and 71 catches for almost a thousand yards. Yeah, and, and, you know, Randall's a guy, that's probably what he is. I mean, he's not a number one big-time guy, but if he's essentially your second or third, depending on Victor Cruz, then you've got a pretty good receiving core. And like I said, now they have James Jones. Um, They also signed Dwayne Harris from Dallas, who's had a few moments over the years with the Cowboys, and I I thought he'd end up being a better receiver in the NFL, which I guess he hasn't become, but I thought that when I watched him in East Carolina. So, you know, they've got a pretty deep receiver. So Randall is 6'4", 205. Is he more the Z guy who lines up with other receivers on that side and maybe takes advantage of, you know, quick pass up field, things like that? Because he's not fast. No, Randall's not fast. He's more of the short to intermediate receiver with a big body. Um, You know, that's that's ultimately what he is, but... They have the explosiveness in Beckham. They've got Vereen, who can be explosive because he's a mismatch. And I think Donnell can actually get down the seam. He's, he, he's a vertical receiver, Donnell, from the tight end position. Yeah, he is uh, what Mr. Gruden likes to call a moving chess piece. Um, offensive line, I, you know, I don't pretend to be a scout or a personnel executive, but there are some things that happen, and I just shake my head and go, okay, you guys know what you're doing. And Eric Flowers going ninth overall, uh, thought his pass set was rudimentary, really had trouble with any sort of uh, foot fakes and things like that. 
Tom Coughlin says he's as tough as an aircraft carrier, to which my... Which he is, by the way. That was what his game was, toughness, competitiveness, which is why I saw him as either a right tackle or a guard. Yeah. And again, I know the league... We, You and I have talked about this numerous times, about the left tackle, right tackle position, the lines being blurred, and, and in a quick passing game, which the Giants have morphed into, it, your left tackle does not have to be Walter Jones or Orlando Pace or Joe Thomas. So I understand thought process. I, I didn't see Flower as you didn't as a ninth pick in a draft, but I understand their thought process. So uh, Will Beatty is out um, for an indeterminate, I don't think it's the whole season. It could be, I'm not, I'd have to go look at that. He's out for a while at least, if not. In any case, they're projecting Flowers to be their left tackle, um, and I'm not really sure how that's going to work. Because, again, the, the ability you need as a left tackle, especially in a short passing game, you need to handle those speed rushers, and if it's a quick passing game, you're going to have to handle inside moves. I did not see him do that very well. To me, he's a guy who stands no. there and just blocks people. You ask him to do anything else, and it's a real problem. I thought his profile as a player kind of translated more inside because I thought his game was built on toughness, competitiveness, nastiness. I mean, that's what I saw Eric Flowers. Now, others, he was a guy that there was a, a wide range of opinion on. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say that, hey, I'm right because I spoke to a lot of people who thought that down the road he could be an awesome left tackle. So, you know, you and I don't quite see it that way, and that's okay. You know, that's, hey, there's doesn't make anybody right or wrong at this point, but I didn't see him as a true left tackle in the NFL. Yeah, and uh, Justin Pugh kicking to left guard, which they keep trying to find a place for him. Uh, Schwartz at right guard. Marshall Newhouse at right tackle, which could go either. I think Weston Richburg might be the best guy on that line. It's just, it's um, it's a bit confounding. I think it adds to their run game issues, and it puts a lot of pressure on Manning. Yeah, I mean, the offensive line is a question mark as they work through camp. There's no question about that. So the defensive line, which, um, you know, Jason Pierre-Paul had the, uh, the unfortunate injury, um, and I don't know when he'll be back. I wanted to talk to you about one guy, Oa Odigizua. From yeah, I liked him a lot. And I was surprised that he dropped uh, as low as he did. What are your thoughts on so him? So did I. Yeah. What are your thoughts on him? Again, you never know if a guy's ready to make the transition to the NFL, but I thought he was very athletic. I, I thought he, he was a little rudimentary in his pass rushing, but I thought that he, in some ways he reminded me of a lowercase Ziggy Ansah. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not as big or purely as athletic, which is why Ansah was, you know, the fifth pick in a draft. But I thought uh, Odigizua was much better than a third-round pick. In fact, I, if he was drafted late in the first round, I wouldn't have been surprised by that at all. So I liked his tape on, uh, on film quite a bit um, and was surprised where he was drafted. Now, again, I don't know if he's ready to play 50 or 55 snaps as a rookie, but I think he has a chance to be a really good player. You know, another guy who they drafted the year before who I I, I didn't think he'd be ready as a rookie, but I'm anxious to see now with another year under his belt was Jay Bromley out of Syracuse. Yeah. I think that kid's pretty athletic and pretty talented. Yep. Uh, to clarify, uh, Beatty tore his pack lifting weights in May. They were estimating five months, so it's going to be a Who's this? Uh, Will Beatty. Oh, right, right. Okay, yeah. They estimated five months sidelined in May, so, uh, you know, we'll see. If they, can, <laughs> if they can get Beatty back and move Flowers somewhere else, that would be a good thing for them. Um, obviously, last year, the Giants' secondary was just blown apart by injuries. They got Rogers Cromarty, they, uh, you know, Prince of Mukamara, who I've always liked. Landon Collins is an interesting guy. Uh, well, the safety position's a huge question mark. I mean, they drafted Collins purely based on need. Um, you know, all you have to do is watch the Alabama tape and you know about Collins because, you know, Nick Saban played him the way he did for a reason. There's a reason he was a linebacker in their, in their sub-packages. You know, I, you know, you know my feeling about that stuff. Coaches tell you how to feel about their players. Mm-hmm. Landon Collins is not a deep safety. So he's, you know, Landon Collins to me is, is he'd have to be used this year the way Dion Buchanan was used. Yeah. And, and they're not going to use him that way because they're stuck. He's going to have to start. Right. And they don't really have, 
See, if you're going to do that, you'd best have someone who can patrol that deep third. They don't have that guy. No, they don't. And in that case, you're going to get toasted for a lot of long completions, which I believe they did last year, which was one of the reasons they, uh, you know, kind of fell apart. So it's it's an interesting team in transition. Certainly, the offense, the passing offense, should be there, but uh, kind of question marks everywhere else. Yeah, the safety position is a huge question mark. Yeah. You know, they, and they may just have to live with it. I mean, they at this point, no one's going to fall out of the sky. They're going to have to live with it. Yep. So, Greg, you're a uh, near Philly guy. I've been waiting all off season to talk to you about the Eagles. <laughs> just a few things happened in the off season. Just a few changes. I want to start with because I know you know Chip. I know you've talked to him a bit. Um, you know, you have an inside view that that a lot of people don't, as far as organizational philosophy. I mean. We're still waiting to see. This could swing anywhere from Bill Belichick to Josh McDaniels or anywhere in between. Um, but certainly, he is riding this horse. He has uh, he has deleashed all the other horses, and it's his baby. And here we go. What are your thoughts overall on the way he's done this? Well, you know, I've read so much about Chip Kelly this off season, as because everybody writes about him, and you know, ultimately, when I watched the tape of the Eagles. The, the the only thing to me that really separates them from other teams is their speed tempo offense. Mm-hmm. Other than that, they're every NFL team. Now, I, I'm not familiar with all their training methods and what they eat. No, I mean you read an awful lot about that. But I think their speed tempo offense gives defenses problems. And but when you look at their route concepts, things like that, they do what everybody else does. Right. So they're not they're not necessarily different on the field except for the speed tempo. And that's a, that's a meaningful difference, by the way. I'm not I'm not downplaying that. Uh, you know, there are teams in the league that use it selectively. There are a lot of teams that don't huddle but don't necessarily play speed tempo. Uh, so they play speed tempo pretty much all the time. Well, and and playing speed tempo is kind of like swing dancing. It's like you think you can do it until you get on the floor. And I, I think what you said there about the speed tempo and other than that, they're like every NFL team. I think that's the value of the way Kelly does it because he doesn't reduce the complexity of his formations. He doesn't change his uh, his playbook. He doesn't go to the Cliff Notes version. You get the whole offense because that's pretty much all they do. And that makes it even tougher because teams that do it in sub uh, series, you know, uh, we'll do it 20% of the time and we, you know, change out all our personnel and you know exactly what the hell we're doing. I think that's the sleight of hand with Chip Kelly is that, you know, this isn't, this isn't a derivation. This is our offense. And here it comes. No, no, and it's not a high-volume offense in terms of concepts. You know, this is not like a Mike Martz offense where, you know, there's 150 plays, you know, uh, on any given week. There's, there's limited con- – the fast – first of all, the faster you play, the fewer concepts you have. Right. Yeah. So, you know – Go ahead. Sorry. So it's not it's not if you're if you're breaking down the Eagles as as a as a defensive coaching staff, you're not blown away by what they're doing. It's not like, oh my god, how do we cover this? How do we the concepts are minimal, relatively simplistic. The issue you face is the speed and therefore the lack of communication that you have defensively and the lack of the ability to adjust or or do things before the snap of the ball which is so important in today's NFL for defenses. He takes Chip Kelly takes all that away. Yeah. So that to me is what he does. You know, the rest is again, I don't know what it all means. We haven't had a large enough sample to know about the sports science and the, the nutrition. We don't know all. I, well, I don't know that. Let's put it that way. I'm sure there are people who do. I certainly don't know that, so I can't begin to speak to it. Well, Football Outsiders keeps a metric called adjusted games lost, which is the the games lost from starters per season in Kelly's two years there. They've ranked uh, first both years. The, the fewest adjusted games lost. So something in the you know the corridors is working. I don't know. Yeah, and again, but I mean, you know, but then you also have to come back to the fact that they lost three games down the stretch last year consecutively when the division was there. So yeah. you know, and again, all I can do is watch the tape. Uh, you know, I think that I, I like Chip Kelly a lot, and and 
we'll see. I mean, they made again the the, the conventional wisdom comes into play here, and the fact that he he goes against the grain because most teams don't make these kinds of wholesale changes in an off season, and clearly he didn't have a concern with that. Now I guess we're going to find out. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what we can say about Sam Bradford for two reasons. We, you and I have already talked him up a lot. And secondly, it's all if he's healthy, which is this generation's if your aunt had balls, she'd be your uncle. Um, but what we, what we know about Nick Foles last year is that it, in, in Chip's first year in 2013, they had all five offensive linemen start all 16 games, and Foles had that historically efficient season. You know, Mathis got hurt, Lane Johnson was out, there were issues. And Foles kind of turned into what some people thought he was, what I thought he was, which is a guy who was going to really struggle under pressure. So now they get Bradford in, and with Mathis gone, you know, you, you wonder if it's going to be that same level of blocking where it's not quite top, you know, tip top. Well, if, if Bradford's here's, here's... healthy, how is it different? Well, there's a couple of things here. Number one, I think that without a quarterback that can move, he can't run the full width and breadth of his, of his offense. I've talked to numerous coaches this offseason, and they, the, the, the first two things that coaches tell me about Chip Kelly's offense is speed, tempo, and read option. So now the read option's out the window. Now, that doesn't mean the offense can't be effective. It's been effective. Um, the second thing is... Uh, Sam Bradford in his Heisman Trophy winning year at Oklahoma Oklahoma ran 82 plays a game uh-huh. Sam Bradford's run a fast paced offense and Sam Bradford is a very very good thrower that can't be denied now it's impossible to know how a guy will play after missing the amount of time he's played but Sam Bradford is a really good thrower a better thrower than Nick Foles well he's also a trem- what at Oklahoma and in limited action in the NFL, he's also a tremendous thrower on boot action and on the run. Yep. And, I mean, he was pegging guys 40-yard d- downfield in that Oklahoma offense, running boot action left. I remember uh, that kid Iglesias caught a bunch of those deep balls when he was doing that. So, Look, I- look what you're getting with, with Bradford, you know, and again, he, yes, he's a question mark for, for the re- reasons that have all been documented. But he was a consensus number one pick in a draft. He's a big-time thrower. He's an easy thrower. The ball comes out. He can stand in the pocket, doesn't need to step in very much, doesn't need to hitch up. You know, all the, he, he can throw. You know, now the question is, will he be comfortable? You know, the, the great thing about Chip's offense, as far as Sam Bradford is concerned, is that there's not a lot of deep drops in Chip's offense. You know, very once in a while they go under center play action with a deep drop and they block it up. But they don't really ask the quarterback to take deep drops and stand in the pocket. So the, the whole idea of, of Sam being concerned about pressure, ideally that's minimized in Chip Kelly's offense. Right. So we've discussed DeMarco Murray. Um, we've kind of discussed the line and where that stands. Um, I want to talk, and, and you mentioned when we were talking about Murray, you know, having him carry that many times again is not really uh, easily replicated. And, you know, here's Ryan Matthews. They may not do that. And I mean, Ryan, Ryan Matthews. Matthews here's Darren Sproles. So how do you think yeah, that Yeah, so, I mean, you could be in a situation where Murray, and, and he may not like it, but where, you know, he gets 15 or 16 carries a game. But I, it would help his career in the long run. Yeah. And Sproles is, you know, I, I think he's a good fit in this offense, obviously, because he's... Oh, for sure. Yeah, total Swiss Army knife. So, offensive line right now, the projected starter is Jason Peters. Um, has been great for a long time, although he allowed a sack in each of his last three games. Al- yeah, he struggled a bit last year, and he's getting older. And their guard, see, the guard position is a question mark. Well, I remember Alan Barbary from up here in, in uh, Seattle practices and. I don't know about Matt Tobin. I don't even know who that is. Uh, Jason Kelsey. Uh, we played last year, and, and you know he struggled. Yeah. Now they like the players. They have to say that. But I mean, clearly it's a question mark. These are not really in starters at this point. So this is speed inside zone, speed outside zone. Is the Chip Kelly offensive line scheme something that can mask enough personnel inefficiencies? Like, I mean, the the the. the Overtime example of that is what Alex Gibbs always used to do, and what Gary Kubiak has done. Is it in that, that mold? 
that's a great question. I, and in all honesty, I don't know the answer to that because now it gets into the, the age-old question in the NFL, no matter what the scheme is, of personnel versus scheme. Can You know, we've heard that for years and in, in a number of different offenses. So, you know, can they mask Alan Barbary and Andrew Gardner or Matt Tobin at card? Uh, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people who would say no, that ultimately if the guys aren't good enough, um, eventually that's going to be exposed. Yeah. Um, I still have all kinds of questions about Philly's secondary. It probably won't be as bad as it was last year because Bradley Fletcher isn't there anymore. But certainly the front seven um, in that Bill Davis hybrid defense – I mean, we know, we know Fletcher Cox. I think people start, need to start talking about Cedric Thornton, like, right now. Well, I've been talking about him for two years. Yeah. I, I noticed him about week four, week five, two years ago, and Cedric Thornton is, is he's a really good 3-4-D end. And those guys don't get a lot of sacks. You know, it, it's like Aaron Smith for all those years in, in Pittsburgh, who arguably was the best 3-4 the end of his generation, and no one really thinks about him because, you know, in a big year, he might have had seven sacks right. because the position doesn't get sacks. Right, unless you're J.J. Watt, which is a whole different story. Yeah, and also he's used, you know, differently as well. I mean, yeah. he, he plays, you know, multiple positions in their sub-package, um, and he's just a unique guy, as we know. We're not comparing Thornton to Watt, no. but, you know, I think the Thornton to, to uh, Aaron Smith comparison is not outrageous by any means. So Vinny Curry, he was um, he was like a, a nickel pass rusher, an outside yep. linebacker, kind of a hybrid guy, and I love when hybrid defensive coordinators do this like the Seahawks did with Michael Bennett and it, well the Bucks did that too with Michael Bennett but I look at Vinnie Curry and I think okay you tried him here you tried him there well now you find a place for him and that's coaching player to scheme explain what Vinnie Curry did last year well, Vinnie Curry was used predominantly in their sub-package. They ended up morphing into a dime defense as the year progressed. Uh, and Curry would usually line up outside. Norm, at times, he'd line up at the tackle because Curry's about 270, 275, and he's a pass rusher, and he's good at it. And, you know, you, any coach, you know this, Doug, there's not a coach in the league will tell you that you ever have enough pass rushers. Right. So if you have a guy who can rush the quarterback, he normally makes the roster and he plays snaps, and Vinnie Curry is that guy. Now, the Eagles have a couple of concerns, just to move along. You know, right now, they have Brandon Graham penciled in as their starting outside linebacker opposite Connor Barwin. That's a question mark. Um, you know, Obviously, now they're looking for their number one draft choice, Marcus Smith, from a year ago. We're all waiting to see if there's significant improvement there. Uh, I think they'd like him to be that guy. That's why they drafted him in the first round. And then, of course, as we speak today, because they're unknowns. They've got a question at the other corner position opposite Byron Maxwell. They'd like it to be Eric Rowe, their second-round pick, who I liked a lot on film, but he's a rookie. Yeah, me too. Uh, um, and then opposite Malcolm Jenkins at safety, you know, again, this is where I guess Chip Kelly, you know, does what, what he believes. They're, they're basically playing Walter Thurman there as a starter opposite Malcolm Jenkins, and you know Walter Thurman from his days in Seattle. He's never played safety before. So, now you're taking a guy who is a corner and you're putting him in safety and you're expecting him to be a good player. Well, let's. that actually brings up a really interesting point, um, and I've thought about this before. In dime defenses, how does safety responsibilities change? Because Thurman may be a safety in name, but I, from what I've noticed, I mean, the Cardinals played more dime defense than anybody else, and they had guys trucking all over the place. So it might not be oh, he's a safety in the traditional sense, because when you're in dime, everyone's roles kind of change. Well, what they did last year, and I think they'll do the same thing this year, is Nolan Carroll essentially played sort of the hybrid linebacker safety position in dime. You know, sort of the Deion Buchanan position. Buchanan position. So assuming they're going to play Carroll in that spot again, because he proved to be a pretty good blitzer, then Walter Thurman, I assume, is going to play safety even in their dime. Now, whether he plays, whether they play two shell and you know play two man, or you know because they don't play a lot of cover two. So whether they play two man and he plays deep, whether they play some kind of man free lurk, you know, you know the, the question is if it's Jenkins and Thurman at safety, and they want to play single high. You know, neither one of those guys is a true single high. But, again, 
that you can mask that too with all kinds of pressure concepts. And so we'll see. We'll see how this all plays out. Uh, before we move on to the Redskins, our final team in this preview, um, people kind of forgot maybe since he lost all of last season to an injury, but Chico. oh my God, in 2013, it was great. What what if he can stay healthy? You know, if if everything's okay, and I think he had a concussion today. I was reading somewhere in practice, but well, he's a complete linebacker. Oh. Uh, you know, the thing about him is he's a really good blitzer. He's a real really good in pass coverage. I mean, if they play dime. He's going to be the linebacker on the field. Yep. And, you know, assuming health and you know and all that. I mean, he's he's a complete multi-dimensional linebacker, and and has really good size. He's over 240 pounds, so he's a really good player when healthy, and he was terrific as a rookie. And that tells you something. When you're taking Connor Barwin off the field for someone else, that someone else had better be pretty good. Well, they may not take Barwin off the field. Barwin, you know, what they do is they mix and match with their their sort of four. I don't want to say four down linemen because they do a lot, but with their four guys who are essentially, you know, defensive linemen types, Barwin has played that role as well. So, you know, because Benny Logan normally isn't on the field then. Sometimes, you know, Cedric Thornton is not either. So you could have their front being Cox, Curry, Barwin, and, uh, you know, that kind of group. Oh, more like the, uh, what, the two-man, like the LeBeau two-man front kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, you know, just, how they use players, yeah, and don't forget that's where uh, Bill Davis got to start. His, right. I believe his first NFL job was with Pittsburgh back in you know the early nineties when it was LeBeau, Dom Capers, Marvin Lewis, that whole group. Yep. When you see a two-man front in Green Bay, Tennessee, or Philadelphia, that's where it came from, kids. Um, Washington Redskins. I don't really know what to say about the quarterback position at this point, except that... Well, you know, unfortunately, what you're hearing, and again, I'm just reading it as you are because you and I are not there. But, you know, the quotes I read, uh, to me, are not positive. You know, the other day, Griffin made the point, you know, if they want me to be ordinary. I mean, you know, that's not really what you want to be saying, and that's not what they want you to be, and that's not how they're coaching you. I mean, if he's equating running around with being great and playing from the pocket with being ordinary, then he hasn't made the mental connection yet with what it takes to play quarterback in the NFL. Well, I did a tape piece uh, last year on him, and especially the Bucks game which I think was the game that got him benched, I saw a quarterback who looked completely and utterly lost. I mean, like, worse than E.J. Manuel level lost. And I don't know whether it was an adjustment to this system or he got gun-shy. I'm not sure what happened, but I was astonished at how out of place he looked on the field, considering that he had had a coaching staff play to his strengths before. So, I mean, when you look at it, you know, you know enough about Jay Gruden's system and what Robert Griffin can do. I mean, what happened? Why did this all fall apart? Well, I think that his first year in the league, that was sort of the era where the read option took the league by storm. You know, Kaepernick was great. You know, I mean, it, I think defenses weren't yet prepared to play with play against it very effectively. And I think Griffin had the unbelievable year. He's a phenomenal straight-line athlete. He's certainly got a power arm. He can throw the ball. And I think the combination of the read option taking defenses by surprise a little bit and his ability to throw uh, gave him a good season. Then, of course, the injuries hit, and his ability to, to be that guy uh, – was you know kind of deteriorated, and so he no longer can physically do it. And number two, defenses you know don't really allow it as the way they did. So now what what has to happen? You got to make throws, and you know without going, we've had this conversation a thousand times, you and I both, you know, in podcasts and just talking without going into all the details of playing quarterback in the NFL. Now you have to play quarterback in the NFL, yeah, uh, and. You know, I don't know. Is he fighting that? I mean, his his comments seem to indicate he's still fighting it. Yeah, I I, I don't know that. You know, I'm just reading his comments. Well, but, it sure as hell looked last year on the field like he was fighting something. Yeah. So you know, he's if he does not learn how to play quarterback from the pocket, I don't think Jay Gruden, to be honest with you, is going to be a real patient with him. No. This was uh, this was an uncertain marriage at best, <laughs> and it appears to still be so. Two guys I want to talk about, because the offensive line was a disaster last year. The quarterback situation was a problem. 
Um, so we don't talk about the consistency of Alfred Morris and I guess the main, the explosiveness of Deshaun Jackson, the plays Deshaun yeah. Jackson made with, you know, Kirk Cousins and Cole, whoever at quarterback. I mean, the guy just ripped up the league and nobody talked about it because the rest of the offense was so unspectacular around him. Yeah, Jackson is, is the best, you know, purest vertical speed guy in the league. And, uh, you know, he's he's a guy you have to account for. I mean, he's someone you you have to deal with depending on situations. Um, you know, their, their pass game was so up and down last year because of inconsistent quarterback play. But, you know, Garcon and Jackson are, are a good duo of receivers, clearly. And, uh, you know, they've got – they have – Andre Roberts, I think Ryan Grant will probably get some more snaps this year. They, their receiving core is not really an issue. Um, the, the hope is that Jordan Reed can stay on the field because he's a talented tight end. Right. Yeah. Um, quick note about the offensive line. I mean, Trent Williams, not a great season. The guys in the middle, uh, not too sure about. Brandon Scherf. Well, they, they drafted Brandon Scherf, obviously, early in the draft, and they, they're they going to play him at guard. And, uh, you know, they're sort of – what they're doing is they're, they're looking to rebuild their O-line, and then players that they've drafted now need to become those guys. So Brandon Scherf's going to play right guard along the lines of Zach Martin, you know, a left tackle in college, moving side to right guard. And I think that's a good move for Scherf. And then they hope that Morgan Moses from Virginia, who was their third-round pick two years ago, can play right tackle. Yeah. Uh, defensive line, Stephen Paia, Terrence Knight, who they got from Denver, Jason Hatcher, ostensibly um, – I like the look. It was a problem last year. I think Knighton helps. I think Paye is more that uh, you know the strong side power guy. I think Hatcher still has a little bit left in the tank. Um, obviously, with Arakbo gone, who he moved to Tennessee, uh, great when healthy. Ryan Kerrigan got the new contract. To me, the pass rush is kind of all on him, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that Joe Barry coming from San Diego, he's going to have to scheme pressure, yep. you know, as their new coordinator. They did a lot of that in San Diego. San Diego gave you really multiple looks, and, and Barry comes from that, and I think that's what you're going to see with the Redskins. They won't be as risky as as Jim Haslett was at times, you know, because Haslett would just throw caution to the wind. But I don't think Barry will be like that. But you will see multiple, multiple looks from this defense to skeet and pressure. Because I think Trent Murphy is a true pass rusher. Yep. Uh, defensive backs, uh, Bashad, <laughs> Bashad Breland, excuse me, who I thought had some good moments. Uh, Jerron Johnson, who Scott McLuhan is familiar with from his time in uh, Seattle, Seattle, or Washington's new GM. Who really, I mean, people don't talk about McGloom much, but he helped build the Super Bowl Niners and he most certainly helped build the, build the Super Bowl Seahawks. One of the most talented personnel guys in the league, no question. Oh, for sure. I, I think everybody agrees with that, you know, but their secondary, you're right. It's, it's a little, you know, it's a little bit of a question. Um, you know, they signed Culliver, who I think is not a bad corner. I think that's um, a real, I mean, they paid him a lot, but I think that's an underrated signing. Yeah, I agree. Um, uh, they also have Deshaun Golson, who, you know, to me, uh, has not quite the player he's been since he left San Francisco a few years back. Um, Duke Iannaccio, they signed from Denver, who is, you know, more of a box safety type player. So I think, I, you know, that's one of those position groups where training camp's going to determine who's going to play. Yeah. Um, final question about the Redskins and the final question for this podcast um, do you believe that Jay Gruden's ideal quarterback can be on this roster now, or is it someone he's going to go out and have to get? I think ultimately they're going to have to get. I mean, I think of the quarterbacks that are presently on the roster, I think he's probably most comfortable, and, and I'm just guessing here, with Colt McCoy. And, but Colt McCoy is probably, you know, not – physically gifted enough to be a 16-game starter. But I think that the way Colt McCoy plays probably fits closest to the Jay Gruden profile. You know, again, everybody wants Andrew Luck, but there's not a lot of those guys. So we're now talking about, you know, what you have. Do you think Gruden is more comfortable with a a more physically limited guy who fits within his constructs than a physically talented outlier he's going to have to rein in? That's a 
great question. That's a really interesting question, and, and I wouldn't know how to answer that because I haven't had a conversation with Jay Gruden, so I don't want to presume to, to speak for him. Um, I, you know, look, would every coach love a really gifted, you know, see, gifted is, is a relative term. I mean, you have to define what that means. You know, again, we've had this conversation about quarterbacks, Doug. What's gifted mean, you know, when it comes to the quarterback position? You know, gifted doesn't mean running a 4-4 or, you know, or, or you know, being athletic in the way we think of athletes like LeBron James being athletic. That's not what a gifted quarterback is. You know, Cam Newton is not a gifted quarterback the way Tom Brady is a gifted quarterback. It Cam Newton would be viewed as a better athlete, correct? Right. But he's not as gifted as a quarterback. So you have to define, you know, what what that means. And and I don't know, you know, everybody. I know how I feel about it, and I've written about it extensively and talked about it extensively. But others may disagree. Well, I, and I don't know how similar his ideology is to his brother's, but I know when his brother was in the league. Um, it was run this offense, do not derivate, do exactly what you need to do, um, and don't screw it up. And he, and he was generally comfortable with the le- – I mean, Rich Gannon aside, who was a much better quarterback than people give him credit for, um, he would rather have, you know, the Brad Johnson, the guy who was flying all over the place that he had to sort of take two years to develop. I think Gruden wanted a guy he could retrofit into his concept – and I think Jay Gruden, based on what I've seen, maybe the same way. It's just it's an interesting thing to look forward to, because I think this team, you know, it's it's two to four years of, of just get out of the way and let Scott McLuhan do his thing, because he's proven right. he can build a championship team if you just let him do it. Well, it's going to be, you know, look, it's going to be really interesting. I mean, it, it, that's one of the stories people are going to be looking at this year, and. You know, I, I just don't think because they're in a tough division, and I think Jay Gruden feels like they've improved in other areas. That I don't think he's going to be really patient, and you know, I, I we'll see. But I, I think, you know, look, I loved RG three coming out of college. I'll be the first to admit it. And and you know, I, I sort of started to reevaluate in my own mind, which I do every year anyway, to, about how I think about quarterbacks playing in college and how they transition to the NFL. But it's for a lot of these guys who play in true, you know, pure spreads, it's the transition is just really hard, and especially if they have running ability. Right. Yeah. It's uh, well, it's a, it's a constant thing, and, and the definition of uh, quarterback excellence changes from era to era, and uh, you know. You know, but one thing doesn't change, and you can say what you want. The one thing that doesn't change is you got to make throws from the pocket. Yeah. That doesn't change, okay? And when all said and done, if you're not working to make a guy the best he can be from the pocket, and again, I'm giving you my point of view, then you're not coaching the quarterback position properly. Because if you start with a basic premise, you can't be great in this league unless you're really good from the pocket, then you need to make sure and coach a guy to be really good from the pocket. You know, as soon as I hear coaches say, oh, we don't want to take away his ability to run around and make plays, I cringe. Yeah. Well, and we can, uh, I mean, the, the Russell Wilson uh, development is an entirely different thing, and I don't want to go on too much of a tangent there, but I will say that of all the, the more recent mobile quarterbacks who have had to deal with that crucible, um, I look at Russell Wilson, especially in the 2014 postseason, where he by far led all quarterbacks in the playoffs in uh, attempts, completions, yards, and touchdowns on passes of 20 yards or more when they were going either bang play action on big plays or just straight-out vertical stuff. Uh, it was 80% from the pocket, and it was like, okay, we're going to get our big plays from here. This is how we start to do it. So I think if you, you have... Know, and I think there's a difference with Russell Wilson, and, and again... Russell Wilson, when it comes to you know mastering the pocket, is not Peyton Manning or Tom Brady. Oh, no, 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 not at all. I don't not think I don't think Russell Wilson, and, and you're there, and you've probably talked to a lot of people about this. Uh-huh. I'm just watching film, okay? I don't think Russell Wilson runs as much due to instinct as he does to necessity, and I think there's a huge difference there. 
Uh, well, I think it's yeah. I th- I don't think it's in- I think it's necessity, and I don't think it's design. Right. I mean, I think does he have a, an excellent instinct when he does run? Yes, but I don't think he drops back and looks to run. No. And and you know, don't forget. Everybody forgets because he's a very good quarterback that he is still under five eleven. And there's no question in my mind that there are throws that are there that he can't see. Without question. What I what I'm saying in a larger sense. For any quarterback who needs to develop that pocket presence in the NFL, I think what the Seahawks did was they said, okay, we, we face more stacked boxes than any other offense because of our running back. We run a lot of play action, and we fool a lot of safeties. So this is the, the start of your pocket education is these big bang plays off play action or certain, you know, you see something and you go, okay, the safety just came down, let's go for it. Um, right. So it's you don't just throw 300 pages at, at Colin Kaepernick and go, okay, now you're a pocket guy, which kind of looked like they did last year. That's, a, again, a different subject. But I think when we're talking about the ability to throw from the pocket, you do that over time, and you do it in different ways that are adaptable to the quarterback in question. You then gain confidence. Then you can do other things. It's just it, it. To me, it's more of a process than, oh, let's have him throw from the pocket. And I think a lot of these guys wash out, and I'm starting to think that RG three will be one of them, because the coach says, well, damn it, throw from the pocket. And that's like saying, damn it, learn how to fly a plane. It's really, really hard. Right. Well, and I think as a quarterback, you have to have some kind of intuitive understanding and willingness. To, to know that that's the way you become a really, you know, a big-time NFL quarterback. Yep. I mean, and, and, and again, I'm just reading RG3's quotes. I'm not speaking to the individual. I'm not there for practice or training camp. I'm reading quotes, and the quotes are a little troubling. I think this marriage will last as long as it has to last and no, no longer. <laughs> yeah, and you could well be right about that. Uh, and on that note, we will uh, wrap up our podcast for this week. Greg, as always, great to talk uh, advanced football with you, and we'll be back next week to discuss, uh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll make that a surprise. And also, we haven't figured that yet. <laughs> I'll let you know five minutes before, and we can uh, go there for you it. Go. Exactly. All right, thanks, man, and we'll talk to you soon.